I could not put this episode out without talking about Dan Toller of Relevant History and his wonderful podcast. Relevant History is this deep dive podcast that talks about, guess what, relevant history. And he covers many topics that tie into modern day. And my personal favorite, honestly, is he talks about the Ark of the Covenant, but not from like a Sunday school perspective or even like a Western Civ perspective common in, in most colleges or high schools. But interestingly and fascinatingly enough, from the perspective of the Ethiopians, it is so interesting. He also has a episode about one of the marathons in the Olympics. It, it was so fascinating. I had no idea all the stuff that went on there. And he just wrapped up this series on Martin Luther and Protestantism. And that was just amazingly interesting. And I tell you what, if you're like me and you love history and, and you love sort of diving deep and thinking about history in, in different ways that maybe you didn't think about it in high school or college or whatever, Dan Toller of Relevant History is your guy. And I'm going to leave a link below in the description. Relevant History is a real highlight. It's, it's so engrossing and you'll really, really enjoy it. And honestly, you're just, when, it, when he puts an episode out, I just look forward so much to listening to them as I go about my day. And I've learned so much about this topic that I love such a great deal. Anyway, that's Relevant History by Dan Toller. And I'm going to leave the link below in the description, like I just said. Hi, everybody. This is Ben Kitchings of the History Voyager. Um, I'm here with Vaughn of Impressions of, of America. And we're going to talk about basically film history and some really, really fascinating things. So you said your work is about uh, the anti-communism in film, first of all, right? Yes, that's that's one aspect of my research. Ah. Um, I I study early Cold War Christmas films for the kind of political and cultural subversion within them um, that are geared towards pro-American politics in the 1946 to 1961 kind of first two phases of the Cold War period. Okay. Um. All right. And what? are the subversive things about Christmas films in 46 to 61? Well, um, one of, one of my chapters focuses on anti-communism, as you said, um, in these films, there are some very kind of latent ideas and arguments being made, um, that I interpret as anti-communist, um, not everyone has interpreted them as anti-communist. The FBI specifically wrote a memo about It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra's film from 1946. Uh, the FBI issued a, an internal memo in August of 1947 claiming that It's a Wonderful Life is communist subversion. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Hang on. All right, so It's a Wonderful Life is not only this, this wonderful cornball cheesecake of a movie, mm -hmm. 
It's also one of my favorite films of all time. I've seen It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, Good Jesus. Uh, I don't even... Are there numbers that go that high? Um, Okay. How on earth is it pro-communist? I have to know. (laughs) Just... So the FBI's report from 7th August 1947 mm-hmm. um, has some kind of key quotes that we can pull out for it. Um, one is quoting it, with regard to the picture, It's a Wonderful Life, redacted, which is the agent's name, uh, that that they have blocked out of all of the, um, all right. the reports made public. So this agent stated in substance that the film represented a rather obvious attempt to discredit bankers by casting Lionel Barrymore as a quote Scrooge type so that he would be the most hated man in the picture. This, according to these sources is a common trick used by communists end quote. And there's another that says a subtle attempt was made to magnify the the problems of the so-called quote common man in society. Otherwise, the picture was described as very entertaining, end quote. Um, There's another entry that says a redacted agent, quote, stated that in his opinion, this picture deliberately maligned the upper class, attempting to show that people who had money were mean and despicable characters. All right. Okay. I disagree with a lot of that. Um. But where the the FBI kind of gets this idea is from Ayn Rand, which is even more interesting. Ah. Yeah. Why don't we... Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so I'm pretty sure... Okay. I'm pretty sure I know who Ayn Ayn Rand is, but maybe somebody doesn't, so... Hmm. Just real quick, so, <laughs> that's fascinating. Oh my god! So Ayn Rand, um, uh-huh. for those who are unfamiliar, is um, a libertarian thinker. Um, she she wrote several novels and kind of treatises on her philosophy. She was Russian and left Russia for the U.S. and became this kind of extremist anti-Russian thinker um, and extremely conservative in in many ways in the 1940s and and 50s and so on. Um, She wrote The the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Those are... Was it Atlas Shrugged? Uh, She wrote Atlas Shrugged, The Fountainhead... Uh, let me think. What was the other one? Um, Anthem? Did did we say Anthem yet? Uh, no. She wrote but, yeah. Yeah. So she's this this conservative libertarian kind of thinker, um, mm-hmm. and really a conservative darling. They loved having an ex Russian woman, mm-hmm. kind of espousing communism constantly. And in nineteen forty seven, not espousing it, but uh, putting it down. And also, um, she died on she died penniless, I think. Yes, there's something like that. Yeah, she she actually, yeah. I believe, in her final years, she was um, on welfare from the U.S. government, which is yeah. a massive yeah. irony for 
her thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wrote this this pamphlet for Hollywood in 1947 mm-hmm. called The Screen Guide for Americans. And she makes 13 points in this pamphlet of things to not do in your pictures for producers and directors and whatnot, people making films in Hollywood, things to not do to keep your film from being communist in any sort of way. Mm -hmm. And the FBI uses this pamphlet as their justification um, that it's a wonderful life is communist subversion. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That just. Hmm. Because I look at It's a Wonderful Life and I see something very pro-family and very Mm -hmm. sort of, um, I don't know, just really pro-family. It's a beautiful story about a man and a woman that fall in love and have kids and try to make it in this little small town, and which I think is actually based on a real place, if I'm not mistaken, right? Um, Um. Bed- Bedford Falls, it, the fictional town in it, is based on just a like very classically American small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if there's a very specific place that they had in mind. Um, Capra definitely had visions of like New York and and New English small towns when he was mm-hmm. creating it. Um, but the story is based on a short story that was actually written as a Christmas card with a few mm-hmm. pages of a personalized story from um, the early 1940s that Frank Capra um, came into ownership of and wanted to make It's a Wonderful Life out of it. Okay. It's probably the best movie made from a Christmas card ever. Um... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, South Park included. But <laughs> that's maybe another story. But um, tell me, okay, so It's a Wonderful Life dates to the early Cold War. Um, mm-hmm. What's another one, um, another Christmas movie that you look at? Um, another one that, that people would probably know would be Miracle on 34th Street from 1947. Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, the the classic <laughs> miracle. Um, that one has a very specific reference within it where uh, Alfred, the young kind of janitor at Macy's, says there's an awful lot of isms going around, but one of the worst is commercialism. And that film does a really incredible job of saying loudly throughout the whole film that commercialism is bad but the entire film is essentially a commercial for macy's and in the promotional material for miracle on 34th street the the people who made it and the marketing team for the film Uh wrote out how department stores can mimic the kind of goodwill policy within the film, which is this idea of actually being honest to your customers and saying, you can get a better price for this gift at Gimbel's or um, you don't want this gift. It's not the best quality. You want this one instead. Uh So I'm guessing, 
I'm guessing Sorry. Gimbel's is a um, department store. Yes, Gimbel's, Gimbel's was a, a major competitor for Macy's um, okay. from the 1850s through, I believe Gimbel's closed in the 1980s, the last Gimbel's closed. Um, wow. But it was a, a massive department store and particularly specializing in their toy department. Um, so at Christmas, people immediately thought Macy's or Gimbel's in this period. Uh-huh. And in the uh, film, there's there's actually a scene of R.H. Macy and Gimbel, the two CEOs of these department stores, shaking hands for a photo op because within this Miracle on 34th Street film, the only thing that can bring them together is this love of Christmas and the Christmas spirit can bring these two powerhouses and rivals together. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Now, which is funny because do you, I mean, do you happen to know what religion Mr. Macy was? Was he Jewish or was he? Mm, I don't know that. Uh, yeah. Actually. Yeah. Well, because I know like, so in Atlanta where I live, um, we had riches here. Okay. The riches department store which Macy's bought out, you know. Um and the riches were were Jewish. They were a Jewish family. Hmm. Um yeah, but they had like they there was a big big Christmas to do downtown. I think there still is, but it's Macy's does it now, you know. But it's tradition here. <laughs> mm. You know. Um hmm yeah um so like why does let me ask why does um the cold war films i guess why do they hold such a place in people's imagination when you think about you know it's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street. And, I mean, the Flubber movies, you know, the, with Fred McMurray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. Like the, I guess you could even talk about the Bridge of the Requi or, or uh, um, what's that other one? God, it's my favorite movie and it just left. Um, just left my brain. Um you know, the Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. There's all these movies that are made, like you're talking about, from 46 to the early 60s that just people have this attachment to. You know? Right. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are many reasons for it. Um... One very specific one with It's a Wonderful Life, for example, mm-hmm. and something that is mimicked with a few others that are now now considered classics. But It's a Wonderful Life was made under Frank Capra's independent production company called Liberty Films. Mm-hmm. Um, when he returned from the war, he was very unhappy with how Hollywood had progressed through the war. 
uh, and really solidified under the the five main studio heads. So he created his own production studio with um, some other directors and producers who were equally as angry. So Liberty Films produced a handful of films and then went out of business. And the copyright for It's a Wonderful Life expired in the late 70s. And nobody picked it up because nobody really realized mm. that this had happened, except for the, the television stations. So It's a Wonderful Life became something that television stations could play for free at Christmas. And that's why it has become such an American classic for Christmas, why everyone has seen it, because it was played constantly for free. And the funny thing that I always remembered about, um, funny is the wrong word, but I guess the ironic thing that I always remember about It's a Wonderful Life was it wasn't popular. So for the for the FBI agent to sort of single that out was kind of funny. It it had kind of middling success. It was fairly successful, but it wasn't the largest film of the year by far. Um, it was actually released early. Mm by a month um kind of accidentally it or mm. not accidentally but just by circumstance um liberty film was supposed to release sinbad instead but sinbad was in kind of production hell and they had trouble with the editing on it so frank capra said just release it's a wonderful life instead so that came out at christmas and it didn't have the as much of the success as he wanted it to, but it had brilliant review from um, audiences and uh, critics. Mm -hmm. Now, was It's a Wonderful Life ever... Um, was it ever re-released in the theaters? Um, not as a major kind of campaign i don't think but there are definitely cinemas who th that do play it's a wonderful life every year around christmas mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. over over here i live in london and here you can still see it's a wonderful life in cinemas uh from about october through december wow I... and here it does not have the cultural re resonance that it does in the states of just being played constantly at Christmas and, and being this just hallmark tradition of the holiday. So even that is, is such an interesting fact that it has this international appeal for being this just classically American story. It's fascinating. What kind of stuff does have the cultural appeal over there? Hmm. Um, well, around Christmas, and for similar mm -hmm. reasons of what they can kind of get away with for cheap playing every year, um, there are traditions of watching The Great Escape at Christmas. Uh, the the war film. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, a British yeah. war Steve, film, yes. Steve McQueen, uh, mm -hmm. what's his name, Donald Pleasant. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a <laughs> kind of classic Christmas film here. Or wow. The Sound of Music is played around Christmas here in some regions. Um, James Bond and Harry Potter are both kind of series that are uh, have a kind of reawakening around Christmas every year. I 
Okay, I have not seen all of the Harry Potter movies. I think I only read two of the Harry Potter books. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not. I'm. I would think I'm too old. I was too old for that when that came out. But as memory serves, a whole lot of the Harry Potter movies, at least that I saw, happened around Christmas, right? Like, or they had a Christmas scene or something. Yeah, in in quite a few of them, I think there there is some sort of Christmas scene. In the first one, it's quite important for establishing Harry's friendship with Ron, that Ron's mm. family include him as a family member at Christmas. Um, and as the, the films go on, it becomes kind of less important, but it is in, in quite a few of them um, to establish a, a sort of familial tie between the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but it- they do, they're normally like the full academic school year from September through kind of May is yeah. the scope of a, a Harry Potter film. Is it fair to say that like Harry Potter, the movies sort of age with the audience? You know, like I think so. Um, at least for when they were coming out, I was kind of right at the right age um, for all of the Harry Potter films and kind of growing up with them. Um, I read all of the books in like one shot, but as the films were coming out, I yeah. grew with them. So, yeah. So, because, I mean, I remember there was this one movie. I don't remember. I remember um, when I went back to college, I, I wrote on the college paper. And one of the things I did was I was the, the movie reviewer. Um and I reviewed Harry Potter, but mm. I did not like it. <laughs> Fair. Um, because again, I was too old for that. So I just went and sort of took it apart, but in a funny way. And mm. the thing that struck me was it was like a kid's version of The Shining with the maze. I don't remember which mm. movie that was, but there was a there was one of them that had a maze in it. And I was the like, fourth one. that's The Shining. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Stop. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. It's a really interesting take. Yeah, I've never thought about that before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. And I maybe I'd watch them now and just think they were cute and charming and whatever, but at the time I was like, no. <laughs> I I think that's fair. They're um I mean, they get much darker and they're more kind of serious undertones and yeah. um, ideas and problems that come out of the the later films that are really interesting for kind of like thinking around philosophy or ideology in different ways. Yeah. But I, don't, yeah. I wouldn't say they're essential viewing. Only if you're into it. Okay. Now, I want to hit that with you for sure. For sure. Um, but I was I was watching this movie way way too late last night and it was i was having way too much fun watching this movie and then i like i thought i need to go to bed because i have to talk to (laughs) vaughn in the morning my morning your afternoon right and but it was the core i don't know if you know what that is core no it's got hillary swank and uh let me think Okay, so Hillary Swank and some other people that are famous play some scientists, and they have to go restart the core of the Earth. Mm. Right? Okay. 
Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's exactly what you would think it would be. It's like this cheesy, fun movie, but it's like it's, I thought, like, this would be a great $10, like, this would be a fun movie for $10 or whatever, like five, Mm -hmm. I think I was like $5. For $5, this would be a fun movie to go see in a theater. But then I thought, like, if you did this today with like $20 or $25 or whatever it is to go into a movie theater now, I'd be mad. Mm. <laughs> you, know, you know? Yeah. Like, you know? So to you, is there like a thing where you see like this movie is perfect at like $2 or whatever? Like for $2, I could see people liking that. Hmm. You know? Yeah. I've never, I've never really thought about it that way. Um, hmm. But Yeah. I, I think there is. I think I think there are some films that I would definitely recommend seeing and seeing in theaters if possible. Um, mm. Of course, I can't think of any off the top of my head. <laughs> um, the Star Wars but, movies. Uh... Oh, Star Wars. Yes, absolutely. Star <laughs> Wars is essential viewing for everyone in uh-huh. every kind of way in cinema, at home, <laughs> on the bus, whatever. <laughs> Um, I I was actually watching Star Wars yeah. last night. <laughs> I was watching Return of the Jedi. Uh, yeah, but I I okay, but like I'm thinking like so like um what are some essential movies like what are movies that you would think of? See to me, I think of like there's a difference between a film and a movie. Like yes, uh, La Strada is a good film. Um. The Godfather, a good film, but like the core is a good movie. Yeah, right. Core is not serious. It's not a serious film, but it's a perfectly mm. entertaining movie to see. But well, you know, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I, I definitely think that there's a difference between films and movies. Um. I think movies are primarily for entertainment and I think films are have something to say. Mm. I think they're, they're conceived of as pieces of art is, is what I would Mm. say. So both are art and both are, or can be entertaining. Um, Mm. I argue in my dissertation and in my research that every film and every movie um, has something to say, whether it's mm. loud and and like a, a very obvious point that is being made or whether it's just in the presentation of what is Americana. That's a political statement. Uh, if you're presenting an average American and you say an average American or something of the like, then that is a political statement to me. And it is a philosophy and an ideology of what it is to be an American. So even oh, if it isn't... I see what you're saying. Like e- you're even saying... if it's not a, a direct kind of, this is what it means to be American. Like there are so many films, like if you watch like JFK or something, that is a very overt idea of what it is to be American, what it is to be un-American. But films like The Core or one I watched recently, like Speed, 
that mm. you're you're presenting this this kind of archetype of what it is to be an American cop or an American scientist and what principles you have at the forefront. Why is that important? Is that a generalization that you're, especially in those movies that they kind of generalize so much about the occupation or um, just kind of plight of certain people? Is that a statement that you're making about everyone um, just by making that film? I, I so, see what you're. I see what you're yeah. saying. Like, um, I haven't seen Speed in in God. I mean, years. Um, the reason why is I didn't like Speed, the movie. Fair. Like, I didn't like it. In fact, I not only did I not like it, I literally when I watched it, it was Keanu Reeves has a way to play a character, right? Mm -hmm. And as good an actor as he is like in the matrix or something like that, if he's not doing that, unless he's also Bill and Ted, unless he's in Bill and Ted, he's not good. Like he's just, interesting. he's, he's wooden. He's really wooden, you know? He's like a modern day Gary Cooper, I guess. Mm. But you wouldn't want Gary Cooper to be uh, the guy who thinks on his feet and acts reacts fast. You right. Know? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I can kind of see that. I'm I'm a big fan of Keanu Reeves. I wasn't. I mean, Speed is a fun movie. Like it's yeah high action and. They're fun quips and everything. Like it's it's a fun watch. It's not one of my favorite films, by far. Um, my favorite movies, rather. But see, see, I'll tell you something that's both a film and a movie, right? Mm -hmm. Is the Matrix one, like the first Matrix. Mm. Um. So I saw the Matrix. When I saw the Matrix, I had never seen an ad for it. I don't know how I'd managed to see like the the biggest movie of of the year and I'd never seen an ad for it. I didn't know what it was about. You know, and plus I was a little buzzed from dinner. And I came in and I was like, "Oh my god. That's amazing." <laughs> right. But mm -hmm. then when I rewatched it for my blog, I was like, years later, I rewatched it for my blog, and I was like, man, did this hit? Like, this hit everything. Yeah. This hit it all. <laughs> they called it. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I mean that that films and movies are both saying something that they can be entertaining, and they can both be serious, and they can both. Mm have a deeper resonance when you when you really sit down and think about it even something as innocuous as a christmas film um which is why i study them <laughs> because you you wouldn't you're not expecting to have this kind of philosophical reaction to something like the matrix but you absolutely do when you give it more time and and think about it and watch it again things just hit differently and you pull different things out of it 
like 20 yeah, years later, example. 20 years yeah. later, it hits. It's like, God, they called it. They absolutely I, called it. <laughs> I have seen It's a Wonderful Life hundreds of times. Every, yeah. Like every year since I was a kid, multiple times a year since I was a kid. And now I study it. And I, I would comfortably say I've seen it probably 75 to 100 times. And I still get new things out of it. When you think deeper about certain scenes or how a line is delivered or, or mm-hmm. just the lighting in a scene. Like there's so much mm-hmm. in films that we can never capture all of it. And we're, we'll never be right about our interpretations of a film because they're interpretations and it's art. And you can disagree about a film like the, for the FBI to say that they that it's a wonderful life is communist subversion is just a ludicrous statement because mm. I w- when I watch it, I see a pro capitalist film of an ardently pro capitalist film. And it's that's How the nature you? of art. Neither of us is right. Why because, do you say that? I'm just curious. Mm, well, the the plot oh, of because he, it's a wonderful because... life. Yeah, yeah, because the little guy comes out on top. Well, he doesn't really. It's it's about two bankers. But mm-hmm. one is George Bailey, who is this small town banker. He's running his dad and uncle's uh, uh, building and loan company, the Bailey Brothers mm-hmm. Building and Loan. And he keeps the town kind of afloat. He keeps people in homes and fed and through the the run on the banks during the great depression he keeps them um kind of placated and makes sure that they have money for what they need wasn't and there then like the a other scene? banker sorry yeah, wasn't there like a scene where george bailey he's talking to the people and he's like are you sure you need this money are you do you really yeah. want it can't we just leave it here? <laughs> yeah, one of them wants to close out his entire account with the building and loan and withdraw everything he has there, which is about, I think it's 230 some dollars and so many cents. And George yeah. asks him if he will take any less than that. And the man is just ardent that, no, he wants all of his money. And then the next person says that she can get by with seventeen fifty, And he kisses her because... He's using his own money, his honeymoon money. He had just gotten married earlier that day. Um, He's using that to keep the town afloat. Yeah. And then the other banker is Lionel Barrymore. And he plays Mr. Potter, who is this kind of town miser. Mm. Uh, He's buying up all of the other businesses, the other banks. He has ties to politicians and the media. And you... That is kind of the embodiment of this monopolistic capitalism that doesn't really fit with a small town way of life. So we we have two sides of capitalism, a small town banker and a big business kind of miser. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And George fights against him as much as he can until a, a kind of dire situation arises and he can no longer figure out how to fight the big bank and ultimately at the end his wife kind of gathers around everyone from the town that george has helped along the way um and 
they all donate money to kind of bail him out. And he ends with around near 30 grand um, to pay off the, the, the deficit and kind of get back to work. But there are no repercussions for the big business miser. Mm. Mr. Potter has, has no repercussions at all. So there isn't really a definitive triumph for George, really. Yeah. It's just getting him out of this last jam. Yeah. But there's no kind of change to the status quo within the town. And I think that's an ardently pro-capitalist message that the small business banker is right for a small town and the big business banker is right for everything else. Hmm. Because there are no repercussions. Hmm. All right. All Let right. me ask you a, a question. A question. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so you were talking about, um, you were talking about essential films earlier. Yes. I think one of the essential films is the paper. Have you seen the paper? The paper? No. What is that? It's a day in the life of Michael Keaton. Hmm. He he works as the editor of of Newsday, a stand-in for new for Newsday. Okay. And he's going. So in the course of this day, he has to have a job interview at the New York Times or a stand-in for the New York Times, okay? And so mm-hmm. it's literally just a like like a 24-hour period of his life. And like his wife is Marissa Tomei and Marissa Tomei is pregnant and he drinks enough th- she says, you know, you re- you drink enough diet cokes to power a car or something like that. Like you mm-hmm. need to stop it. you know you drink enough coke to power a car or something like that is one of the lines but it's a story about this kind of a local metro big city paper and like those the people that work in those kind of papers now uh that don't exist um mostly uh those types of papers are either dead or they got bought out by the big you know, capital by the big, um, what do you call it? Like the venture, the hedge funds. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in a way it's, you know, it's kind of the, the, the pre funeral for that type of journalism and that type of thing. But, to me, that's also sort of a portrait of sort of like what you're talking about with small town banks and big city banks and things like that mm. I highly recommend seeing it uh, it's also very funny or I think it's funny I'll spend if I watch it I'll spend the entire movie cackling there's like so many lines uh, in the, there's so many good lines in that movie um yeah, no, actually, I'll have to see it. Yeah, it's really good. I highly recommend it. Even if you like have to rent it on pay-per-view or something, it's it's highly good. Hmm. Um, but what's your, what are some essential films that you think about as essential films? So I think this is a this is a challenging question for me because I 
I am a film historian and very frequently I, when I say that to people, they're like, well, have you seen this film? And there are so many films <laughs> that nobody's going to see every film, every classic film that people decide is kind of a necessary viewing. There, there are a couple that I, I feel ardently about, but I would never say like everybody has to watch this except for star wars of course but if like if it's not your thing then you're not going to watch it and you're not going to appreciate it in a certain way and i i just i don't know if that's the most helpful category of like essential viewing i would recommend it's a wonderful life i think it's a brilliant film um capra said that it's his favorite film and he thinks it may be the greatest film ever made uh, he said that in his autobiography. Mm. I would agree with him. I think it's just fantastic. Um, there, there are some other films like. Hmm. Honestly, I'm a massive Capra fan, so I would recommend a lot of Capra's films. <laughs> but I know so that, that a lot of people are not Capra fans. So you're a big Capra fan. Are you a big. Uh... Do you like uh, Billy Wilder? Billy Wilder. Which one is Billy Wilder? Sunset Boulevard was a movie he did. Yes, yes, yes. I actually just watched that a few weeks ago for Impressions of America. Sunset Boulevard. Oh my I God. love that film. It's so good. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, okay. For the three people that haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> for both of the people that don't know what we're talking about. Mm. Um. Oh God! It's so there's a young uh, screenwriter who he's at the end of his rope, and he goes driving, uh, and he ends up at Norma Desmond's house. And I was amazed to learn the other day that Norma Desmond was fifty mm-hmm. when the movie was made. Norma Desmond was fifty. I'd forgotten that. Um, which, you know, wow. Um, she does not look 50 in that film. No, she's absolutely stunning. And they harp the entire time on how old and decrepit she is. She's gorgeous. (laughs) Well, anyway, so it's a movie about an older lady taking advantage of a younger man and vice versa. And it's also, there's a bit of noir to it. Is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. It is. I would say it is a noir. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. And that's, the first half of it to me is easily one of the best movies I've ever seen. Mm. Just the first half alone is easily one of the best movies I've ever seen. I I can see that. It. It opens with with a murder, and mm-hmm. then you don't return to that until the very end, and you almost forget that that happened because the rest of the film in the middle is so entertaining and, and just all encompassing that you're just engrossed in this film. Yeah, it's it's really good. And the amazing thing, the amazing that. thing is, from the beginning shot, you know how it ends because you're told how it ends. Hmm. And it's all the stuff in the middle or in the end that, that gets you up to that. That's just so 
great. And what's your uh, and uh, anyway, so we both love Sunset Boulevard. Um, it's funny because Billy Wilder said that he was a popcorn salesman. Mm-hmm. Instead of you know, he said that was his job. So I can't let you go before we talk about Star Wars. Yes, that's fair. I okay. So we got into a little Twitter beef about uh, the prequels. <laughs> so why don't you tell mm-hmm. us your your opinion of the prequels? I have a lot of opinions on the prequels. <laughs> um, I love them. I think they're great. And not even in the kind of caveat way of how people say they're great, but they're terrible or they're the best worst films. I don't think they're bad. I I think that they could be better, but I don't think they're bad films. I think they're extremely entertaining. I think the story is fantastic. I, I think, I mean, the music just hands down in any Star Wars is perfect because it's almost always John Williams. Um. I yeah, I just I really enjoy the prequels. I think the politics are fascinating. I love that they meld this political um almost like a legal procedural with these kind of action sequences and then also a romance. I think it's done very well. It transcends genres and it also develops Star Wars from the kind of campy um very 70s early 80s almost pantomime uh, space Western opera that it is, it brings it into a new period and really takes on a lot of the character of the time that it was made being 99 through 2005. I think that's a very classically Star Wars thing to do to bring the, the outside world in, in your kind of interesting storyline um, just set in space. So the originals mimicked Nixon and, and Carter and Vietnam and this kind of very, cl- very clear to most Americans on what good and evil is. And then the prequels brought in the politics of the time, the Gulf War, 9-11 even, um, George Bush, and it developed this new kind of like um, political ideology that matched the spirit of the time that they were made in of we can't really tell what good is anymore and we can't really tell what bad is and everything is blurred and gray. How do we move forward with this? And I think it's just very well done. I really, really love the prequels. We should have had a whole podcast where I just asked you about the prequels because (laughs) I'm sitting here with my mouth open because on the one hand, I just, I'm taken in by how you, you like, I mean, Star Wars episode one, I don't remember if it was one or three that I saw that I legit to this day think is probably one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Ever. And it's probably it just, episode one. I don't remember, but it, I remember coming out of one of the movies and thinking, oh God, let me help. <laughs> 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 like, 
like not you know in a snarky way but like he's not doing it right it's not stop so why do you think there's so many generation x people like myself who honestly just think it's terrible because they're extremely different from the original trilogy uh-huh. Like extremely different. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a new generation's interacting with the originals. And I mean, writing writing a prequel to anything is a feat where you can explain things that happened in a different film. But to do it with three films about three films, having to conceive of a new story arc to make sense with the original trilogy not every single thing lines up that's Mm. i'll concede that um i mentioned earlier that i watched return of the jedi last night and leia says in that that she remembers her mother and she remembers that she was beautiful and obviously that is not possible because leia is taken from her within a moment um in the end of revenge of the sith episode three yeah but to write a prequel at all is a feat. And to do one as, as I think, good and nearly seamless as the prequels are for the original trilogy, I think it's just an incredible thing that George Lucas did. Of course, I have some, some kind of critiques of them, but overall, I've, I think they're wonderful. And I think that the, the generational divide is that i mean i grew up with all six of the originals or well like the original and then the prequel trilogy it's fascinating that you call them all six because i don't think of them as all six i think of it as like four five six and then one two three and then seven eight nine and then you have i mean I, i have the unpopular opinion that rogue one is actually really good like, I don't think that's I, an unpopular opinion. I think that's I think, the opinion. I think Rogue yeah. One it works as a really good film, not just a good oh yeah Star Wars film, but a good film. I think Solo is pretty good, but it's nothing yeah, Solo's compared fun. to Rogue. Yeah, Solo's okay, but I mean, Rogue One is amazing. It's like really excellent. Well, Rogue One <laughs> I think works so well because it's not. It's not a classic Star Wars film. It's not part of this the Skywalker saga. It's not trying to be. It's not campy. It's not any any of the sort of original things. It's a war movie. It is a war yeah. movie through and through. There's an epic battle. The best I will happily say that the the best um starship battle in all of Star Wars and even mm. land battle um is the battle yeah. of uh, is it Scarif? Yeah, the the blind uh, the blind Jedi monk that kills all those people, mm-hmm. and he hear, he says the mantra like the Force is in me, <laughs> like I forget what he says, but it's so cool. I'm one with the Force, and the Force, yeah, the force is in me. Yeah, 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 it's so cool. And you said it didn't tie into the Star Wars saga, but it does because the way oh, no, it, it ends. Yeah. The way the way it ends, you're like, I remember I went with my buddy, 
and the end of the movie, both of us, like, our mouths fell open. Mm. <laughs> like, you know, like, I, our mouths literally fell open. I Yeah, it definitely, it's tangential to this Skywalker saga, and it makes the Skywalker saga possible. Um, we didn't need this film. We know what happens because of the opening scroll of, of text at the beginning of A New Hope. We already know this story. And like you said with Sunset Boulevard, you know from the very beginning how it ends, but it's everything in between that's that's helpful. We know that none of those characters made it off. And we know that everybody has to die by the end of it because it's a war film that leads yeah. into a trilogy we already know happened. So the, the kind of yeah. fascinating, beautiful thing about Rogue One is that it's this gorgeous war film that really brings home that it's not mm. just the skywalkers mm. and their rebel friends fighting the empire it's everyone it is people who have lost everything to the empire who are turning up for the rebellion it is people on random planets who just don't like the status quo and it builds this just incredible different view that we don't get in the mainstream Star Wars films. We do get it in some of the other media like Clone Wars and Rebels, but we don't get it in the mainstream films that the rebel cells are everyone and everywhere. And it's not about the Skywalkers. It ends tying back into, but it's not part of the Skywalker saga. It is a film unto itself. And it's just incredible. And the thing, like the thing that I really liked about Rogue One, I mean, other than the entire movie, which I really liked, um, but the one like scene that I thought was just really cool was you saw, I guess because of film technology had advanced since 76 or whatever it was, but you saw... um, how terrifying it would be to fart to fight Darth Vader. Yeah. Right. You really saw that. And maybe it was the technology. Maybe it's also more of a, a father son sort of thing, but you really saw like this guy is scary. (laughs) You know, he's scary to fight, but, Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. Okay, so why do why do I, a Generation X person who doesn't like the prequels, why do I like the uh, seven, eight, nine? If I don't like the prequels, why do I like seven, eight, nine? Because I think seven, eight, nine were more classically Star Wars, akin to the originals, which yeah. Disney did very well in, especially in Force Awakens. They took elements of the prequels and originals, and pretty much. didn't do anything new in force awakens um that it was all things that we had seen and it was to get people who are original fans or are prequel fans on side for this new trilogy they bring in music motifs from the originals and the prequels they bring in lighting techniques from the originals and prequels and mix them together into this new thing to get most people back on side and they also Um, don't I mean, forgive me, but they also don't. um, The prequels seemed to me to be a child's movie. Oh, I disagree. (laughs) Well, Jar Jar Binks. There was no Jar Jar Binks sort of 
<sighs> whatever that was. <laughs> yeah, I don't like Jar Jar. Like, that's not a secret. I can't stand Jar Jar Binks. But I don't think that the prequels are children's movies. Half of it, half of them, each one is like Senate proceedings and talking about the trade blockades and how that affects a military kind of incursion somewhere. Like they're, they're very political, deeply political films that when I was a child did go over my head. And when I watch them now, I'm like, Oh wow. That's, that's a blatant critique on early two thousands politics and what, what the U S was doing in, um, Afghanistan. It, I like I I don't think that they. Or... I mean, the originals oh, have the prequel. The originals have the Ewoks, which was literally an addition so that George Lucas could sell toys. So if we want to make that argument, there yeah. are there are kind of children's motifs through all of them, but well, I think see, they I... all offer many things for adults as well. I mean, as an adult. I mean, I'm I'm here to tell you, as an adult, I really honestly do think uh, four, five, and six. Even though I really love four, five, and six a lot, um, I have a lot of Star Wars T-shirts. I, you know, a lot of Star Wars T-shirts. Um, I'm wearing one right now, by the way. Um, hmm. Yeah, um, but I'm here to tell you, I honestly think that. Uh, Four, five, and six are children's movies that adults can watch, that adults can like, and adults can get something out of. And even like, there's some deep, there's some really good scenes in them, and like, I really enjoy it. Honestly, that's not to denigrate them at all. But you could also put a six-year-old in front of four, five, and six, and one, two, three, right? I don't know that you could do that with seven, eight, nine. I don't know that you could take a child to seven, eight, nine. You know? I think you could. Maybe. I would say that they're the most geared towards children of all of them. Well, okay. You certainly couldn't take a kid to Rogue One, though, for sure. Not a not a small kid. Probably not. Probably not Rogue One. I mean, that is, as, as I said, it's a war movie. It's not... It's more yeah. like Saving Private Ryan than it is like Episode 7. Okay. So we're talking about... So I'm just Googling the, the years here. Right? So Phantom Menace was... 1999. 99. So, so 99 is before uh, 9-11. Okay. So... Yes. Okay, so what's the, so Phantom Menace and I know Revenge of the Sith, but what was the okay? So Revenge of the Sith, Revenge. Okay, what was the third one? The uh, second one. Revenge of the Sith was, was the, the third one. Attack of the Clones is the second one from two thousand two. Okay. That was the okay. Now I remember. Uh, that was the one where I was like, um. <laughs> Because I was a big fan of, um, like, so there were these novels that used to be out that they would put out. I guess Lucas people would put out or whatever. I don't, business-wise, I don't know how that happened. But there were these novels that would really bring in, like, adult themes into the 
the Clone Wars because this movie is about the Clone Wars theoretically. And I just thought this movie just really glazed over the Clone Wars. Well, Attack of the Clones was setting up for the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars haven't started in Attack of the Clones. They started in the They started at the very, very end. They started at the very end on Geonosis um, is when the actual war is technically beginning. And then between episode two and episode three, so 2002 and 2005, there was a run of comics from Dark Horse that went through all of the Clone Wars. When did the Clone Wars show come out? 2008 to 2014, and then the seventh season was in 2020. Okay, and the the Clone Wars television show uh, covers, hopefully titled The Clone Wars, hopefully covers The Clone Wars. So you're saying that Revenge of the Sith has is a critique of the Afghanistan involvement. The US and, and all of the Clone Wars, yeah. Okay. Definitely. Okay, because I was thinking Revenge of the Sith was 99. Yeah, no, Revenge of the Sith is 2005. Yeah, um, um, not, not, I mean, the first one, which was called, let me remember Phantom again. Menace. Phantom Menace, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Phantom Menace doesn't um, get into much of the Senate proceedings um, or the politics mm, in any right. direct way. It's much more setting up Anakin Skywalker as a character um, and the and reintroducing the em- Emperor and his apprentice Darth Maul. Um, mm-hmm. And then Attack of the Clones gets very deep into the politics of the situation. Uh, into the trade blockades and all of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me, okay, so let me switch gears. Tell me about your podcast that you do. Hmm. Um, so it's called Impressions of America. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a co-host with Simon and Toby, who are both, uh, well, Simon is Scottish and Toby is British, um, and I'm American. So we have three different kind of cultural perspectives on American history and we look at all sorts of things from the post-war period through today we've Mm -hmm. done series on different presidents like Ronald Reagan and his kind of upbringing through Hollywood and uh, his ties with religious movements and then his presidency Um, we've looked at we've done just recently we did a film series of looking at kind of iconic films from certain cities around the U.S. We did Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Chicago, and L.A. Um, and reviewed kind of how how the cultural perceptions of these cities have changed through the decades on various films. So we look at a lot of cultural and political and uh, media history that give you an impression of what it is to be American and to be living at any at any certain time through the latter half of the 20th century through today. We also do mm-hmm. political kind of wrap ups on current events um, and commentaries like that. Hmm. We also did a star Wars episode specifically uh, yeah. because I wanted to, and it's a behemoth of an episode. It's quite long, but um, we get into a lot of the history of 
Star Wars and how it has become this kind of cultural phenomenon, how it impacted Hollywood and what the politics, everything basically that I've been saying here, just in a lot more detail. Um, so that episode is available from us. Yeah. Was it, do you think it was always going to be a cultural phenomenon or, or did it sort of morph into that? I think it definitely morphed into that. Nobody expected it to be successful. The budget for um, Star Wars was, I believe, 11 million. So insanely low budget. And yeah. it grossed at the box office over 700,000 or yeah. sorry, 700 million. And nobody was expecting it to be successful at all. It absolutely huh. um, outperformed any expectations and it became such an important cultural thing. And because of that, that immediate success, Star Wars is one of the only and certainly the most successful uh, franchise that started as a film and then novels came and comics came and video games mm -hmm. and sequels and all of this sort of other media that comes out of Star Wars. It all started with a film. So no one, no one was expecting this to be the cultural thing that it is. Um, and I'm very grateful that it is because I love Star Wars. I, I do too, but, and I know lots of people who do. But I mean, it really kind of, I think for several generations, it, it sort of hit in a sweet spot. Hmm. You know, like, I don't know. Like it a lot. Um, so what are, where do you think American pop culture is going? That is a big question. <laughs> um, yeah. In, in terms of the film industry, a lot of very interesting things are happening at the moment. Um, there was just, I won't get into kind of the, the boring policy side of this, but um, two years ago, or no, rather last summer, um, there was a decree overturned uh, by the Supreme Court called the pa Paramount Decrees from 1948 that essentially mm. said um, production companies can't own the rights to distribution also, or the means of distribution also. That was just overturned because the Supreme Court said it was outdated um, for mm. what laws are needed now, but it was never renewed. So Disney can now own things like Disney Plus and own their distribution model. And the reason that was overturned originally is because of this vertical integration system that if your extremely wealthy production company also owns the cinema, then no independent studio is going to be able to afford to show their work in a cinema. So it's mm -hmm. a monopolizing effort that or it was an anti-monopolizing effort to have these decrees and having this overturned is very dangerous for culture and art and film specifically. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the film industry, we have, I, I fear that we might have a kind of standardizing kind of singularity of 
these extremely wealthy companies like Disney or Amazon um, creating and Netflix to an extent, but creating the content that mm-hmm. they're putting out and marginalizing any other sort of of independent kind of studio. Disney is kind of famous for, especially with their, their Pixar branch, um, buying up small independent animation studios and putting them out of business. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a dangerous thing for art. So I think in terms of film for popular culture at the moment, there is a fear that it's progressing into a singular narrative um, of just a handful of people owning all of the cultural outputs. And for many of the reasons that I've said today, um, I think that is a very dangerous idea because media, especially innocent fun media, does carry political messages. And if Mm. only a handful of people are deciding what those messages are, that is a dangerous thing. Um, Yeah, I I agree with you. But and that wasn't even where I thought that question was going to go. But (laughs) what I (laughs) where I thought it was going to go was um, so like, you know, I went to film school, among other Mm -hmm. things. And I was trained to believe that people wanted story and they wanted the story shot a certain way. And, you know, it could be handheld or steady camera, whatever, but, you know, you wanted it lit a certain way. You wanted certain things. But now with YouTube, you have like, like the phone just plays with that aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, like it plays with the aspect ratio that people find acceptable or that people have gotten probably a lot more accustomed to shaky video now than they were, say, 20 years ago. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, Things like that. That's what I was talking about. Or like if you look at a show like... Uh, a YouTube show like uh, Good Mythical Morning, for example. Uh, try to pitch Good Mythical Morning to a television station back before YouTube, right? Try to go back into the 90s and and say, hey, I want to do a show with two guys who are obviously best friends being snarky about fast food. And believe it or not, it'll be a huge hit. You know, you'd get laughed out mm-hmm. of the room. You know, so yeah, okay. I I see your big budget movies, and I, yeah, okay, that's going to be a, a a problem or an issue or what have you. But on the other side, we've we've got this technological revolution, you know, coming or that's here, not even coming mm. here. You know, like this podcast. I'm in the top ten percent of podcasts in the world. You know, which is amazing yeah. to me. You know. Yeah, no, that is amazing. Yeah, I definitely see your point that that there so, are other yeah. outlets for kind of independent and um for for individuals yeah. to get into certain fields of entertainment and everything. And I, I definitely take that point. I think I'm speaking more just specifically for the film industry, um, is what I know best. Oh, I uh, am too. I mean, I agree with you. 
yeah. that that's a dangerous problem and that you're going to get a lot of, I mean, okay, not even dangerous problem. You're going to get a lot of remakes. You're going to get a lot of note for note remakes or just straight up redos of like, mm-hmm. um, one of my mutuals was talking about how, uh, we've decided to remake the Nolan Batman films all of a sudden, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like, for no apparent reason, we've just decided to remake the Nolan Batman movies. Um, But I wonder if... Like, I wonder if radio is going to... There's a young... um, I'm going to say a young man. I don't know how old he is. But there's a guy who does a fictional podcast. It's really good. It's called Neon Shadows. Neon Shadows could not exist in a world without independent podcasting. But it's it's like the radio play mm-hmm. reimagined. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, that's interesting. So, yeah, I'm going to... Yeah, that's a shout-out, by the way, to Neon Shadows. Didn't intend to, but just saying... So maybe independent creators are going to go in other direction and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's definitely a possibility. I mean, with art, you can stifle it on kind of corporate levels, but you can never, you can never get rid of art or discourage artists. So they will find a way to get their, their things out there. Yeah. That hopefully we can make space for it to get, very far out there and be popular and be mainstream um, without needing the kind of production companies and cinemas mm. or streaming sites as, as is most common now. Um, well, yeah, I take about, point. If you think about like, maybe not with the iPhone 13, but say like the iPhone 17, right? Which doesn't exist mm-hmm. yet. And you think about, like, I remember when video editing software was very, very rudimentary compared to what it is now. And it's also a lot cheaper than it used to be, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about that, I mean, yeah, okay, you're not making, and you might not have, like, the a Woody Allen audience in terms of size. Or like a, what's another classic independent filmmaker? Uh, you know. Um, Capra, when he released It's a Wonderful Life. He was independent. Capra or, uh, what's another one? Um, the Italian guy. I can't, Jesus. He made eight and Fellini? a half. Um, Fellini. Say that again? Fellini. You might not have Fellini's audience size. Right, but you wouldn't need it because you know, for like a thousand dollars, you could have your own, you could basically have your own edit situation and your own, you know, the software and the computer together would be a thousand dollars, and the phone to film it on, and blah blah blah, and (laughs) you know, I'm just saying, like, you could do a drone. There's mm-hmm. ways around this kind of stuff. Yeah, 
So yeah, yeah, maybe maybe it's not all doom and gloom, as I say. Maybe they're. I mean, I definitely think, as I said, artists will always find a way um, to work within these kind of restrictions. Yeah. So. Yeah. And hopefully, we'll get more legislation that is anti-monopoly, um, which is a right. classically American trait that we should be anti-monopoly. Um, mm. So hopefully that comes back, but we'll see. We'll see how Hollywood kind of progresses in the next couple yeah, of years. Or, or it might not even be Hollywood. It might be. Um, yeah, Hollywood independent, could die. Independent. Well, see that. I'm wondering if it will. Like, I'm, I'm not even mm-hmm. being snarky. I'm, I'm an independent creator and I watch YouTube videos partly to just see what the lay of the land is and partly because I'm a fan of some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I really think what people want is authenticity. Like what we always wanted was authenticity. And so Capra was the way to get that or Spielberg was the way to get that. Right. But now you can go on YouTube and get it. Just saying. Yeah. (sighs) Okay, Vaughn. Um, you want to talk about anything else? Um, I don't think so. I got my Star Wars fix in, so I think I'm good. Hmm. Unless you have anything else that you want to get into. Have you seen any David Lynch films? I have not, actually. That is, that is uh, one that I have huh. managed to miss. Was that on purpose? Not really. I I don't think it like one, it hasn't really come across my radar, but also I just haven't really had any interest in the things that I have looked into about Lynch. It just doesn't really feel like my type of thing. Hmm. Maybe I'm wrong type? because I have What is your type of thing? Um well Christmas films and Star Wars. <laughs> I if oh, if yeah. it's I mean I, I don't know. I like a lot of sorts of films. Um, I don't like horror, though, and I don't, I do like a psychological thriller every once in a while, but something more like Rear Window, I would say. Oh. Um, Not anything kind of too bizarre, and it just doesn't grab me in the same way it grabs other people, I think. See, yeah, like Mulholland Drive is bizarre. Like, I've I've seen Mulholland Drive a lot. I still hmm. can't tell you what it's about. (laughs) It's bizarre. Yeah, I um, I think I think Lynch is definitely for a lot of people. It just has never been something that I've been super interested in, and maybe I'm at fault for not trying to actually sit down and watch a Lynchian film. But so so the thing I like about like a Hitchcock movie is you can watch a Hitchcock movie from beginning to end, mm-hmm. and you can tell somebody the story. Like there's a story to to appreciate from beginning to end. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that way with a lot of Lynch films, though not certainly not all of them. Okay. But that's that way with a lot of Lynch films. Mm-hmm. But there's also this thing underneath the surface that the further you dive into that, the more intricate it becomes. To right. where that's what you're watching. The intricate moving thing under the surface is actually what you're seeing. Right. So some mm-hmm. people don't like that. 
See, yeah. that's that sounds more intriguing than any other description of Lynch that I've ever heard. That that makes me want to go watch one of them. Okay, so go watch uh, Mulholland Drive, and the first three times you see it, you don't really see it. Right. <laughs> Interesting. The fir- you know, the first time you're gonna watch it, you won't know what happened. Like you're just, you're just not it's not gonna make sense to you. But eventually, and ideally, you have to space them out over some years and some experience. Right, right. Because there's something that happened to me where I was watching Mahon Drive the last time, and I was like, "Oh." I know what it's about now. I didn't know before. <laughs> I do love that experience when you rewatch a film and it just, everything changes and you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. I I do love that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was so, he did a movie that you watch this movie and you think you're watching something. You don't you don't really realize that you're not actually watching that. You're watching something else. But you don't know that until you've seen it so many times that you can watch past that. <laughs> right. And it also wouldn't work for a lot of movies. It also wouldn't work for a lot because mm-hmm. it has to be interesting enough to keep watching. You know? Yeah. But have you ever seen Game of Thrones? Yes. Watched all of them. Oh, goody. I want to talk to you about Game of Thrones. <laughs> What's your favorite? What do you think about Game of Thrones? Um, I thought it was very good and engaging until the last season. <laughs> Did you? Okay. I don't understand people that think that way. I'm like you really? with the with the prequels. <laughs> no, I think it's great. Um, hmm. Interesting. I think it's probably the best television show ever made. Game of Thrones. Interesting. Even even the final season. Yes. Oh wow. And the reason why is because history is complicated. History is bizarre. Right? Mm-hmm. History is made up of real people who don't always act rationally. And don't always do what you think they're going to do. And don't always have the story you think they would have. Right? Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, I mean, the classic example in real life is, so Stalin, right? Stalin killed millions of people, okay? Mm-hmm. He killed millions of people. He he oppressed his people. He killed millions of Georgians, right? But his little girl broke her arm, and he was apoplectic. And nobody and his hardened advisors couldn't believe it. Like his little girl broke her arm and he just lost it. 
you know, for weeks. Right. You know, just saying. Harden Keller, girl breaks his arm, breaks her arm, and he flips out. <laughs> yeah, I can I can see what you're saying about Game of Thrones, but I like I, I definitely get that. Get what? Well, get that you're you're saying that like storylines don't have to be what you're expecting them to be, and that. Yeah. In history, people are can be irrational and just make decisions. But I, for me, I don't think that that's a strong storytelling device because it's not history; it's an entertainment piece. And oh, wait. as you said, but people st- want authenticity and and like we want satisfaction and we want storylines that are good and solid and make sense that we can follow we don't want something irrational that we're like oh that could just happen at any point but see that but see the thing i love the thing i love about game of thrones is that it was a retelling of the war of the roses yeah see but it's not history it's still entertainment like it's a retelling but it's also an adaptation and it's made for popular consumption. See, I okay. I, I just mm. <laughs> okay. Here's so you gave me your spiel on the on the prequel. So here's my spiel on Game of Thrones. If I were a history professor, if I were a history professor, and I was trying to get people to see the Middle Ages. Okay, instead of getting them to watch documentaries about the Middle Ages or whatever, I would say watch Game of Thrones because those people believed in dragons and the Game of Thrones people believe in dragons. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, history is full of rulers that are crazy and do crazy things. Right. And, you know, Daenerys Targaryen, she comes from a crazy family. Her family, her grandfather was the Mad King. Or, you know, like her father, whatever it was, was the Mad King. So, of course, she comes from a crazy family. You know? (laughs) Right. No, I can can definitely see it. I I see your point. Yeah. I know it's not the storybook everybody wanted, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know. Yeah, no, it's an it's an interesting viewpoint, yeah. though. I, yeah. I'll so if you were going to write this, if you were going to write the satisfying comfort food ending of Game of Thrones, how would you do it? Uh, honestly, it could have still ended the same way, but just with 10 more episodes it was just too fast i think that i mean if we like i i wouldn't mind an irrational ending if it was actually spaced out and made sense i i would not have the one thing that i absolutely would have changed is how quickly the night king just dies and isn't important anymore because that's how the se- that's how the series opens is the night king and mm. the symbols and the 
the white walkers and everything. And then they're just not important at the end. And that's, that I think is awful storytelling. In my opinion, that they just, that Arya just stabs him and it's over. I mean, but there was a whole episode of that. (laughs) Yeah, but you built up this villain for a decade and Arya just jumps out of nowhere and stabs him and it's over. Like, I don't, that wasn't actually, satisfying to me. Actually, I've got the, okay. All right. So, okay, hold on. Hold on. Okay, other browser. <laughs> other browser. Let me see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see how many episodes of Game of Thrones there are. Um, because it wasn't a decade. See, we're thinking about it wrong because we saw it in real time, right? It was, uh, let's see, it wasn't a decade. It was, let me see how many episodes it was. No, but it was, it was a decade for us. Okay, but it wasn't, it's not like there's a decade of shows. It's not like. No, but it was a cultural phenomenon for a decade. And no, you I get it. Build up a conversation and everything for a decade. I get it. I get it. But it's only like eighty episodes or something like that, or not even that. I mean, so, so it's, it's around it, eighty because yeah, there's yeah. like ten episodes per season. I I think the last two seasons there's fewer episodes, but it's about eighty. Yeah, it's but yeah, it's almost eighty. Aside from the political angle, like where do you think movie pop culture is going? Like, what stories do you think are going to come out of this time? Um, more superheroes, honestly. I think we're going to get a lot more. I don't think we're done with the superhero genre. Um, really? It's bleeding into, as long as it's profitable, they're still going to do it. I watched Joker last week for the first time. And I think that's a prime example of this, is that Joker is not about the Joker. It's not about Gotham. It's not about anything from the comic books or Batman or anything of the like. It's a remake and a love letter to Taxi Driver. But a remake and a love letter to Taxi Driver would never make money today. So just slapping the word Arkham on a couple of buildings in it and calling it Joker automatically people wanted to see it and it made over a billion dollars and in the box office i i don't think we're done with superhero stuff um even if it's just tangential or even just in name comics and superheroes are still the the bulk of the way of the future in my opinion so like you okay so you could honestly see a prestige movie where like say like superman isn't superman he's a dude who just wants to be a farmer and lois lane either realizes he's superman or doesn't but she's just his loving wife Mm -hmm. (laughs) and but that's a prestige movie like that's wow yeah yeah i i think it's gonna happen and i don't think we can 
discourage it at the moment because there's just so much it is it's it's everything that's out right now in Disney spaces and when they own the means of distribution they decide what we're watching see but I wonder okay like I wonder honestly if you're also gonna get the cool thing about now is that you can watch anything you want so you can be this kid that you're a kid, but you but you like Chinatown, right? Mm. Or like you like uh, what was that movie I saw recently? It was about it was about a group of convicts made in the seventies, but it was about the thirties. It was done by. Oh. Um, He's dead now, the director. He's really famous, and you would know his name. Uh, <laughs> God damn it. It's the guy who did... Um, I don't remember. <laughs> but I'm going to leave you, and it'll I'll blurt it out. <laughs> but it was... Fair. Oh, okay. He did... Um, Okay. Anyway, it's a really good movie and it's it's about the 70s but it takes place in the 30s but it's this group of convicts and they go through Mississippi and I cannot think of the movie or the guy's name but it's so good and you can watch it and realize they don't make movies like that anymore. Like you would never make a movie like that now. Well that kind of sounds like Oh Brother Where Art Thou? It's better than our brother Warto. <laughs> oh, brother Warto was. But that is the, the same kind of like, like that's what I was thinking when you yeah. were describing that. They take it's longer shots. It's more brutal. Mm. It's more honest. It's more. Um, but it's also like very much in the seventies as far as like young love and and sort of. Um, these people are ultimately disposable, even to other, even to the people they love. They're ultimately right. disposable. Um, but it's just so good. <laughs> but it's also so bleak. Like it's so bleak, and like Bonnie and Clyde's another one. But you could have these kids watching these movies, and they're still kids today. Like they're kids of today, but they're watching the 70s movies or they're why you know or mm-hmm. you know i put this on facebook as, uh, before we talked um this memory i had that I, I would meet these kids uh where i got my masters who um they had never been to a theater they'd never been to a movie theater which you know mm. think about how and I think that's going to be a lot more common because of what we were talking about earlier. Because all the, you know, like you're saying, if you're owning all the means of production, you know, you're going to turn out the same stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Know. So. I tell you what, um, 
why don't you give a shout out to your podcast and because I got to download this thing mm-hmm. and that's going to take a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So yes, um, my podcast is called Impressions of America. You can find us on Twitter at USA Impressions or on Instagram um, at Impressions of America. I am Vaughn and on Twitter I am at G Vaughn Joy. Um, so yeah, come check us out. And we have a lot of new stuff coming out in the next couple weeks and through the Christmas period. Um, and a, a mm. fun new project starting next year that we can't announce yet. But wow. it will be fun. You will be interested in it if you liked this episode. I hope you guys like the episode a lot. And uh, I tell you what, if you can email me your links, um, I will put them in the description. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I will put this episode out most likely tomorrow. Okay. After it, after I give it a snippy snip. Boo. (laughs) 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 All right. Thanks a lot, Vaughn. And uh, just hang on the line while this thing downloads. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for coming on.